Our time is burdened under the cumulative weight of successive debunkings of our conceits. We live in the cosmic boondocks. Welcome to the Cosmic Boondocks, a weekly online radio show discussing science, reason, and humanistic values in India. Hello and welcome to the Cosmic Boondocks. Every Saturday a bunch of us get together and we have a hangout session on Google Plus and we call these the Sense Meetings and Sense stands for Saturday Evening Nirmukta Hangout Sessions. We discussed various topics that are chosen beforehand, and an edited version of our discussion will make its way into the podcast every week. Dr. Daryl Ray. Dr. Daryl Ray is the founder of Recovering from Religion, as well as the author of The God Virus and Sex and God. Dr. Ray holds a MA degree in religion and a doctorate in psychology. He has been a practicing psychologist for over 30 years. It's very interesting to note that Dr. Ray was born in a very religious family and was surrounded by religion while growing up. He grew up surrounded by a family of preachers and missionaries. It should be interesting to hear from him about his journey so far. Welcome, Dr. Ray. We are very honored to have you with us. Now, would you please tell us about yourself and your work? Oh, sure. Um, well, first of all, greetings from uh, Kansas City in the heart of the United States. And I was at a free thought group last night, and one of our members is uh, Garika Anand, and she, uh, she's her parents are from the Delhi area. So she said, uh, send greetings uh, in her name as well. And, and, uh, Arap Kaseho, she told me to say. Kaseho. <laughs> I hope I said that right. Up, <laughs> up Kaseho, up Kaseho, right? Okay. Anyway, I assume, I assume that means how are you, or is that correct? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good, good. Uh, so she'll be listening to this later, she said. So I, I wanted to get her, uh, her greeting in as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she's a lawyer here in town. Uh, well, I, I started out very religious. I taught, I taught in Sunday school classes and churches. Uh, my grandparents were missionaries. I mean, my grandparents were preachers and ministers. My parents became missionaries when they retired. So I was, I was surrounded by, you know, I, and I have cousins that are, were missionaries in Africa and just a ton of, of so many people were, were religious in my family. And, and I thought I was pretty religious too. In fact, there's four boys in my family and I'm the only, I'm the oldest. I'm the only one that stayed in religion at all. No, none of my brothers ever went into religion at all. So, uh, I, I went on to get a master, a bachelor's degree in anthropology, sociology, and then went in to get a master's degree in religion. And, uh, after two years of getting a master's degree at uh, a very religious school, Scarrett College for Christian Workers was the name of it, um, I just decided I, I didn't believe most of what I was taught, so I became a very, very liberal Christian, and, you know, probably within another 10 years, 
was um, would consider myself an, at least an agnostic and and maybe even an, an atheist. It's kind of hard to tell, you know. There's no clear boundary line in my life when when I could honestly say I'm an atheist. But by 40 years old, I was certainly certainly an atheist. Uh, I guess my big part of my journey started in my psychology studies. When I started psychology, I studied with the great psychotherapist Albert Ellis, who in the late 1970s, and uh, he, he died a few years ago, and he was, he was 90, 93, I think, when he died. But he was one of the greatest psychotherapists of the 20th century, and he was an out atheist in the 1950s and 60s even. So studying with him, he had some tough questions to ask that I couldn't answer. And I think that... I think that helped me start re-examining my very fundamentalist, uh, thorough religious indoctrination from my my childhood. Uh, but once I once I figured out what was going on and that, that there really weren't any answers to these questions, then I I started studying it more deeply from a psychological perspective, in anthropology, sociology, and uh, it's just it's just been a great journey since then. I've and led to the writing of these my two my two books. I actually have written four books, but these last two are all on on religion. Yeah. So how did the organization Recovering from Religion start, and how successful has it been so far? Well, thank you for asking. Um, in nineteen in uh, two thousand and nine, my book The God Virus came out, and instantly I started getting phone calls and email messages from people saying, "Wow, I I read this book and it was like therapy for me." I, I, I was able to see how infected I really was with religion. Even even people who are now atheists or agnostics read the book. And many people said, I wish I'd have had this book when I was coming out of religion. It would have really helped me understand what religion does to my people's minds. So I, it gave me the idea to start this um, a group called Recovering from Religion. I held the first meeting here in my home, on my own town, and just put up a little notice and and that night, uh, I only gave it about a week's notice, and that first meeting, 11 people showed up, and I was just shocked. <laughs> and I, I only asked two questions. I asked the group, how did religion hurt you when you were religious, and how, is it, how have you benefited by leaving religion? And, and two and a half hours later, the owner of the restaurant was kicking us out. We, we could have talked another two hours, I think, and I just... At that moment, I realized, wow, this is powerful. We really need to be helping people. And so I started this group, and our motto is, there are thousands of groups that will get you into religion. We're the only one that will help you out. That's our motto. <laughs> yeah, we, we need more of those. So do you get the resistance? Uh, uh, no, not, not really. Uh, I can't say we've seen, uh, seen resistance, but... It's only been going three years now, and in in October, I was able to uh, turn the group over after I've been working on it for almost three years, and I I just don't have time. You know, I'm I'm a writer, I'm a psychologist, I've got so many things on my plate. I, so I started looking for a new director uh, for a, a year, and then last year I turned it over to Jerry Dewitt, who is a former. Pentecostal, very conservative Pentecostal minister, who's now an atheist, and from 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 southern Louisiana of all places, which is, I mean, that's really really the worst spot on the planet, practically for for fundamentalist Christians. I mean, he was the kind of preacher that was rolling in the aisles and and jumping up and down and speaking in tongues and you know just crazy crazy stuff. 
And he's now an atheist, and he's a really bright guy. He's about 42, 43 years old, got lots of experience, good organizer. So I turned it over to him, and he quickly found an assistant in uh, Sarah Moorhead. And they have grown the organization from about 20, 25 meetings to almost 200 meetings throughout the United States and Canada. And we're starting to get requests from places like the United Kingdom, and hopefully we'd love to have a request from uh, India. It's it's just a real low-key, it's a low-key organization. Anybody can start a group. You don't have to have any special qualifications. And uh, we'll help you put up a web page. There's no cost to it at all. We're we're fully here to help you help people get out of religion. And, and what you see is when you get a bunch of people in the same room who are all leaving. I mean, you could have a, an ex-Muslim, an ex-Hindu, an ex-Baptist, an ex-Catholic, and they're all in the same room, and they're talking to each other. And suddenly, you can, it's, it's really fun, suddenly what happens is they all realize we all suffered the same thing. It doesn't matter what religion. They, they, all, ha- they all have the same emotional and psychological impact on you. Um, and that's, that's what we're, we're shooting for. We want to we help people realize the games. All religions play these games. There's no exceptions. They all do. So our organization also started about three years ago. And since... One, uh, one year, we too yes. have been meeting very frequently in the major cities of India. And so, uh, we also share the same environment, right. meeting ex-Hindus and ex-Muslims. So, in, in your book, uh, The God Virus, you use uh, a similar yes. analogy like uh, Dawkins used. And uh, I recently attended uh, the Jaipur Fest where Dawkins came. And uh, while Dawkins was being interviewed, and uh, he was asked if he would have changed something uh, about his book if he had written it today. So, he <laughs> said that he would have used the virus instead of meme. Because it is more uh, um, easily connected uh, to what we observe in daily life. So, it uh, is easier to understand this analogy. So, how accurate do you think this analogy holds and what all behaviors uh, does it explain? And how do well, you keep to understand, like, how do you think of virus, like, suddenly? Well, actually, uh, to, to step back a bit, I... Um, uh, I'm glad I'm glad to hear Doctor Dawkins say that. That's kind of that's very gratifying. Actually, <laughs> he he has read the God Virus. He's read my book, and and um, he he came to Kansas City uh, about in July this last year to interview me about my sex research and uh, and about the Recovering from Religion group and, and for a BBC Four documentary that will be aired sometime in uh, this month or next month. I'm told I, I don't have an exact date. So if your listeners want to, to view some of what I say about recovering from religion and what I say about the, the God virus and sex and God, um, that may be that that may be up. I don't know if it'll be available in India, but it's BBC Four, and a lot of times they're put up on on the internet pretty soon after they come out. But I, I really um, I read I read Dawkins, I read Dennett, I read Harris Hitchens, I read them all. And uh, I got the idea uh, from an essay that uh, Richard Dawkins wrote back in uh, 1989 called Viruses of the Mind. It's just an essay. And I read that essay and I thought, dang, that works. Uh, but it works for mm-hmm. thought processes. And, and Dawkins is a biologist and, and Hitchens is a journalist and Sam Harris is a neuropsychologist. But none of these people, you know, and Dennett mm-hmm. is a philosopher, none of these people are psychologists clinical psychologists or counseling psychologists who sat sat in the office and listened to people talk about their experiences. 
face-to-face for days and weeks and months and years. And I've done that. And I could honestly say that most of the problems around guilt and sexual uh, dysfunction, mm-hmm. and those sides, they came, come directly from religious childhood training. And if we just subtracted religious training, the job of the psychologist would be much easier, much better. Uh, and and I, as I explored that, I realized, well, you know, what's happened is people have literally been infected, much like a disease, much like somebody has, has given them a virus. And it, But it's a virus that gets into your brain, and it literally reprograms your brain. And in the book, as you probably know from reading, if you read The God Virus, I talk about uh, some parasites that, that do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they uh, cause them to jump into the river. Yes, right. The hairworm causes. But but there's others, uh, like the Toxoplasma gondii, that reprograms the brains of rats. And mm-hmm. as it reprograms, it makes the rat literally go out and, and look for cats. Well, he mm-hmm. will, the, mm-hmm. rat, the rat will still avoid an owl or other predators, but it won't avoid a cat. It'll it'll actually walk up and kiss a cat, basically, and the cat the cat then eats the rat, and the cat gets the parasite. Well, the paras mm-hmm. the parasite can only survive in the gut of a rat. It cannot survive in the gut of an owl, and that's important. So now the rat has died, but the parasite lives on. Well, if you look at religion, it does the same thing. Most religions don't care if you live or die as long as you pass the virus on to the next generation or to someone else. And so, in fact, in some cases, uh, people actually commit genetic suicide. Uh, religions that require celibacy, like the Catholic religion requires celibacy, of, of um, and, and the Buddhist religion requires celibacy in some cases. Well, those people have committed genetic suicide. Well, there are actually viruses and parasites that force frogs to become um, sterile and and no longer able to reproduce. So, in other words, the frog carries the parasite, and the parasite propagates through the frog, but the frog dies genetically. Well, isn't that what religion does? A priest, a Catholic priest, dies genetically. And martyrs the same way. You know, a suicide bomber in Iran... A woman who's going out and blowing herself up, she just commits genetic suicide, especially if she's never had children. Uh, or or the the 19 men who flew planes into the World Trade Center, none of them probably had children. So they committed genetic suicide. But they did it in the interest of propagating their particular God virus. And it just made so much sense when I started researching this. And as I started writing the book, I sent it off to a good friend of mine and after about three or four chapters, he writes back to me and says, wow, I've never read a book like this. And then I knew I had something because he's very educated, very well read. He'd read all of Dick and Dawkins and such. So I thought, wow, I've got something here. So I, I kept writing and it's actually been a bestseller. It's sold incredibly well. And it's still right now. It's the number one rated book on Amazon of all atheist books. It's the number one rated. It's not, not it's not, it's not the best selling. It's not the best selling, but it's the number one rated. <laughs> I enjoyed your book pretty much as well, and as you said, little different approach than Dawkins, Hitchens, and Harris, and no one has attempted uh, to analyze religion from this uh, point of view, and after I read The God Virus, I was able to associate it with the real-life observations, how the virus is at play when I'm conversing with the believers. Yes, right. Mm. 
So you can you can see when the person's when the virus kicks in. Because you can talk mm-hmm. to a Hindu, and they're very clear and very able to critique Islam very well. They can critique Christianity very well, but when they but they cannot critique Hinduism at all, because the virus mm-hmm. the virus blocks that in their brain. Yes. In fact, uh, in your own book, you mention an example that if you converse with a religious be- believer and record that conversation, and later on change the religion, uh, later on if you show that according to the person, he would not agree with it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's it's a great experiment to take the very words that they use and just flip them over to the other religion and they'll totally deny it then. <laughs> I have done that experiment so many times in my life. It's very amusing, actually. Uh, but, you know, it rarely changes anybody's mind, but it shows the virus right at work. Uh, that That's a good insight, uh, Lalit. And you explain in your book that viruses adopt some strategies to survive. So what all strategies do... Well, each, each god virus has its own strategy. There's clearly a different strategy for the Hindu as there would be for the Muslim, and a very different Muslim from the Catholic. But they all have a strategy of uh, an, an infection strategy. Now, the reason I wrote my second, um, my fourth book, I'm sorry, The Sex and God, was to more fully explore. You know, in god virus, I talk about Sex is probably the best strategy for infecting people. But I didn't really develop that. I only really did that in one chapter, and it really deserved a a much more thorough treatment. So it it all has to do with the guilt cycle. And every major religion, and probably almost all minor religions too, use the guilt cycle. And I I explain the guilt cycle in this way. The religion has to teach you. You're not born knowing what to be guilty of. A religion has to teach you what what things are guilt-inducing and what things are not. The things that Hindus feel guilty about are different than the things a Christian will feel guilty about, or a Muslim or a Buddhist. And I'm just sticking with the main major religions of the planet. Uh, so each each religion has its own guilt uh, pattern, if you will, and they're different. But there's a lot of overlap, too, especially when it comes to sex. Uh, You know, they can be quite different. I mean, for example, Jews and uh, Muslims have certain food food requirements that you would feel guilty if you ate pork. And Hindus, strict vegetarian Hindus, would feel guilty if they ate any kind of meat. So those those are guilt-inducing behaviors that are not necessarily sexual. So we can see that there's, there's other things that creates guilt. So you have to learn what to be guilty of for your particular religion. Now, I don't think you've ever heard of a of a Hindu confessing to a Catholic priest any sins or transgressions. And you you'll never hear of a Catholic confessing their sins to a Muslim imam. They the only place the only place you can get forgiven for your guilt is the place you learned the guilt. So guilt is a very important component of all these religions. Uh, and guilt guilt says you're you're damned, you're going to hell or you're you're not going to you know go to the next level of life or whatever your religion says because you did this. And the only place you're going to get forgiven from it and be able to get back on track with your particular god or or god philosophy is back here. So it it's a perfect it's a perfect psychological game that forces people to come back to their religion. Very few people actually leave the main religion of their, of their childhood. Whatever religion you're exposed to at five to seven years old is probably the religion you're going to have the rest of your life. 
And even people, even people who are not particularly religious, let's say, you know, people who are 30 or 40 years old and suddenly they become very religious. Well, it's, it's mm-hmm. often because it's often the religion that they were exposed to at five to seven years old. Very few, very few Christians wake up at 30 years of all age and realize, oh, Allah is the answer. And no, you know, very few Muslims wake up at 40 years old and say Shiva is the goddess of uh, you know, the world. Now, it's just not going to happen. So people have people are forced to come back through the guilt cycle. If you just think of this cycle, you, you're, you learn what to be guilty of. You're tempted. There's tension around food, around sex. You engage in that behavior. You feel guilty about it. You have to come back and get forgiveness. And then the cycle starts all over again. And every time you go through a cycle of the guilt cycle, you get more and more deeply programmed into that particular religion until you're so infected with the guilt you can't get away. Now, I only explore guilt in the God virus. I explore shame in sex and God because shame is also a very powerful tool. Uh, But shame is more associated with sex and sexual behavior Whereas guilt is associated with a wide range of behaviors, like, as I said earlier, uh, food, food um, taboos and, and uh, practices. So, so uh, but shame is equally power, even more powerful. But shame has to have a communal aspect to it. You, you can feel guilty totally alone because you know your God is watching you. But in shame, it's a communal thing. You, you are shamed by your family. You're shamed by your community. And so if you... If you live in a communal society, shame is also a powerful tool for infecting people with a given God virus. So I find the slut-shaming culture as one of the products of right, this. Right, yeah. And I really like your poster when you're asking to the audience, do you masturbate? Yes. <laughs> you also mentioned in your book about super vectors, how the God virus tries to get into important positions and as you said that God virus is also threatened by anything that liberates you from guilt, from shame and that's why the religions feel threatened from secularism, women right movement and uh, uh, pro-choice movements. So how do you think that this has this is affecting uh, current politics? Well, I, I'm only in a small way familiar with what's going on in India, although I've always been in, interested. I think it's one of the most fascinating countries on the planet. I've always been fascinated with it. Um, I can't say I'm up to the latest politics, but I have noticed some of the court decisions uh, that I've seen coming out of India that that seem to protect the religions against uh, attacks. Both both Muslim and and Hindu religions are being protected by the legal system. And a, a super well, let me go back to your first question. A super vector is somebody who is very powerful as a propagator of the God virus, of, of that particular religion. So in the United States, we have a man named Rick Warren, who has followed millions of followers and brings in millions and millions of dollars. He, he, is, he is so powerful that he can get the president of the United States, the candidates, to come and ask his blessing. Well, that's pretty powerful if you can force the president to come talk to you. And that's what he did in our last presidential election. So you get these super vectors, but they can also be politicians. And uh, you have you have politicians in your both uh, uh, the parliament in India, and you have you have, a, you have a few governors in some of the provinces that are yeah it, states. You have some governors in some of the states who are super vectors too. They're very religious, 
and they seem to take on as their challenge to protect their particular religion against all encroachment. So those are, they are, they're super because they're not just a minister or a priest or a preacher going out and, you know, converting people. They're actually protecting their religion at a very high political level or a very high monetary level or a very high cultural level. And um, that makes them super. They're far more effective than just your everyday religious leader. And you also explain in your book how certain verses are more advanced than others. Right. And you take up the case of Islam, which you say is uh, more advanced than uh, other viruses because of its uh, history. So, uh, what what traits make an, a virus advanced? Well, of course, when I use the word advanced, I don't mean better. <laughs> I just mean <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's like an army with better weapons. Uh, we, if we look at the history of Islam, and I do say in the book, Islam is more advanced than Christianity or Judaism, because Islam has more weapons to defend itself against encroachments by other religions or encroachments by secularism. Uh, so, the, the history of Islam shows, I mean, if you go back to the history of that particular area, Judaism was a particular type of tribal religion. It wasn't particularly interested in in expanding or proselytizing. So it was a tribal religion, as, as most religions on the face of the earth were tribal religions until about um, 2,500 years ago. There, there were no what I call universal religions. And a universal religion is a religion that makes claim that their God is above all other gods, that their particular religious beliefs are more important than any others. And that was a new idea 25, 2600 years ago. Yes, in fact, monotheism in itself was a new idea. I suppose. Exactly, uh, right. Prior and, to and that, of course, we we, we're not positive, but looks like monotheism may have started in, um, in Egypt somewhere around 3000 years ago. But, you know, it was its own brand. And the brand of monotheism uh, that Judaism has was probably influenced by the Egyptian monotheism. And by and by later the uh, the Babylonian captivity in Persia, because Persia had a uh, a duo theism with two gods, a god of of light and a god of dark, but the Jews brought that back more as a god of um, uh, Yahweh and then Satan or the devil. This this concept of of uh, fighting fighting deities in the West. Your the Hinduism is much more. Much older than than these religions, it goes much farther back with with many of the same attributes that say Greek polytheism had. So so they did not necessarily impact Hinduism, Buddhism did not impact the West until until sometime later. So I don't really discuss their defense strategies in the same way. But with 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 the advent of Christianity, it comes along and it is an underground religion. And an underground religion is fi- they're they're trying to survive and they're running away from the Roman authorities that are persecuting them and things like that. So it's um it's it's a different way to defend yourself. You know, you're running and hiding. You're not you're not learning how to fight wars. And then and then our our the Muslims come along with Muhammad, and Muhammad actually reads Christianity and and Judaism. And learns from them, and he puts into the Quran defense strategies that he picks up from from Catholicism, from Arianism, from from Judaism, from all the local main religions at the time. 
So he's actually gained the benefit of watching how these other religions have survived. Plus, he's a military genius, and he uses a military approach to conquest, which the Christians had had not done until until about the 400s. Um, so Christianity was not a military religion until about the 400s. So I, that helps you understand why, in this case, Islam is advanced, because it's literally benefited from learning how these others have survived and, and added the military strategy to it. So uh, does, does being a monotheistic religion add to its advantage for Islam? I think it's a huge advantage, and I think that was a major... Um, uh, a major advantage for Islam in, in particular. Uh, the, Jew, the Jews had the advantage of being monotheistic for sure, but they weren't militaristic as well. They didn't make claims of universality for all other religions, although, although they, they tend to now more than they used to. But Islam basically said, if you don't believe in our God, you, you should be dead, and we're going to make sure you're dead if we can possibly do it. And, and they, they can critique Catholicism, they can critique Protestant, they can critique any other Christian religion, any Hindu religion, and say, you guys are worshipping a whole lot of gods. And actually, I agree. There are, I don't even think, this is, I make a claim, uh, I don't make it in the book, but I do say that there are no monotheistic religions. On the face of the planet, there's not one monotheistic religion. In fact, if you if you read, the, even in Bible, there are traces of earlier polytheism that were later changed. Uh, absolutely. And and there was Asherah, who was the, the goddess of, of Yahweh, the, actually the wife of Yahweh. Yeah. So, it's it, it, even in Judaism, it's not exactly monotheistic because they they have a Satan in their religion. And this is a god. In Catholicism, I say there are five. Can you name, I ask Catholics, can you name the five gods of Catholicism? And most Catholics cannot name the five gods. Uh, and I'll name them for you. They're the, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, Mary. So that's four. So who's the fifth god in Catholicism? It's, is it Satan? It's Satan. Yeah. Absolutely. If you look at the way these five gods operate, Satan is more powerful than the other four gods put together. When, when the, uh, when the huge Catholic child molestation, um, the child molestation scandal broke in Ireland last uh, last few years. The Pope came out and said it was Satan operating in our priests. Okay, if Satan is powerful enough to totally, <laughs> that's a that's a pretty powerful god to to overcome all these other four gods. Well, of course, Catholics don't like me telling them they've got five gods and they're a polytheistic religion, but they are. Because as a psychologist, I don't look at your your stupid theology. I look at your behavior. I want to know which gods influence you more. And Satan definitely has the most influence over any other god in that particular religion. So, so don't try and tell me you're not polytheistic. You're behaving just like the Greeks behaved, or any other polytheistic religion. You're you're actually you may not pray to Satan, but you're doing a hell of a lot to it to uh, avoid his influence, or you're under, inadvertently under his influence, as all these pedophile Catholic priests were in, in Ireland. <laughs> it's, it's actually quite humorous, I think. They don't see the humor in it, but I do. <laughs> also, would you say that vectors are uh, uncomfortable with their own disease, but would rather bear the guilt and shame 
then get it done away with because of because of the infection. <laughs> well, you know the vectors are very successful at what they're doing. They're getting lots of social recognition, lots of approval, and often lots of money. So there's there's a good deal of of in psychology we call it positive reinforcement for that particular behavior. They do have dissonance, cognitive dissonance, another psychological term that that shows that there's some disagreement, if you would, within their own brain between what they're doing and what they probably know to be true. But they usually tamp that down. As I talk about in the, in the Sex and God book, when people try to suppress their, their thought processes, logical or otherwise, and try to suppress their natural biology, it tends to come out in other places. So you see the example in Thailand of Buddhist monks being caught, having been pedophiles and raping children for the last 10 or 15 years. I mean, there's a big scandal in Thailand with Buddhist monks. And if you look at how that's playing itself out in Thailand, it looks exactly like Ireland with Catholic priests. When you tell somebody you have to be celibate for life, that sexual energy is going to go somewhere. And if you don't let it come out in appropriate ways, it's going to come out in inappropriate ways, hurtful ways to other human beings. And that's how religion infects people and how it hurts people because they don't realize religion's telling me not to do a perfectly normal and natural thing. And as I, as I, you mentioned a bit earlier, I actually start my talks out, um, with the, with the question, do you masturbate? And I raise my hand. Yeah, I masturbate. Every every primate on the planet masturbates. So if you tell me you don't masturbate, you're probably lying. We know that at least 97% of all males do it, and probably 70-plus percent of all females do it. So it's just ridiculous to, for religions to tell us don't masturbate. It's a sin. It's a crime against God and whatever else. And all of the major religions say that. All the major religions do. So what it tells us is you are if you're religious you are living a lie. You're doing one thing and practicing something else. And then we and and we see this in in super vectors and in in vectors of these god viruses because very frequently you find some minister being caught with his pants down or some priest getting caught you know raping children. Well that shows that they are inappropriately channeling the sexual energy, the natural sexual energy that they have. And they've been taught by their religion they can't, you can't get married or you can't have sex or you can't masturbate. Well, they're going to do it with somebody in some way that's going to hurt somebody else. Religion is dangerous in that, re in that way because the religious leaders are but in a powerful position to abuse other people. Are there any beneficial uh, uh, beneficial virus? Like, can you, is there anything beneficial about it, about the virus? Well, uh, uh, Gita, that that's a good question. I have really studied this hard. I I actually haven't found any god viruses that mm -hmm. I I think have <laughs> on on balance on on the whole a beneficial aspect to them. Now there are some religions that are less. Uh, less poisonous, to use Christopher Hitchens' term. Harmful. You know, mm -hmm. harmful, yeah, harmful, poisonous. Well, um, mm -hmm. in the United States, we have uh, the Unitarian movements, 
And the Unitarians are very low-key, and you could actually be an atheist and belong to the Unitarians. So <laughs> so that's a pretty low-level God. I'm not even sure they believe in any God at all. So, okay, I can live with that. And it's more mm-hmm. a, it's more taking advantage of the fact that we are human beings. We're social creatures. We need other people. Yeah. We, we want to yeah. meet with other people. And I went to, like I said in the beginning of the uh, broadcast, I went to a free thought meeting last night. And it's just a bunch of us standing around drinking wine or beer and having a good time and talking about whatever we want to talk about. And that's very satisfying mm-hmm. to we as human social primates. There's nothing religious. Mm-hmm. You don't have... You don't have to have a religion to do that. But what religion has done, as I say in the God virus, religion has taken advantage of our need for social contact and said, okay, yeah. we're going to, we're going to, we're going to let you come to our church. But after about four or five weeks, you better get infected with our God virus or we're not going to, we're not going to let you stay. And I, I tell my friends, we'll do this experiment. If you're an atheist, go to the Baptist church or the Catholic church and go to their Sunday school class and, and ask your questions about, you don't really believe that people raise from the dead, do you? You don't think people walk on water or turn wine into water into wine. And ask those stupid questions for about a month and pretty soon they're not going to let you come back. To, so you can have all the, you can have all the social contact you want as long as you believe the same kind of crap that we believe. And that's what religion does. We, in, in, in small towns and rural areas, and you've got a lot of rural areas in India, we've got a lot in uh, North America, there's no alternative. Where do you go to get your social needs met? There aren't any free thinker groups. There's no atheist groups. Um, so you have to go to some church. And even if it's not a church that you particularly want to go to, my, my own parents, my own mother, for example, uh, was raised in one denomination. But the local town that her father was the principal of the school, little tiny town in the middle of Kansas, there was only one, two churches to go to. And neither one of them were close mm-hmm. to the one that they wanted to go to. So they ended up, you know, converting, so to speak, to this new uh, church just so they could have a social place to, to go to. And my grandfather taught Sunday mm-hmm. school and things like that. So it's, it's, it's insidious the way religion uses our natural tendencies, our natural tendencies for social contact and our natural tendencies for, for sexual behavior and our natural tendencies for eating and takes advantage of those for itself. And that was the whole reason I wrote it with God virus is to show how they religions all religions use these natural tendencies against us. Yeah. And uh, in your book you mentioned that certain personalities are more susceptible to getting infected than others. And also it's it is about where you are born that which virus infects you. So how does that affect us? Wow, that's a that's a great question. You know, I've done a lot of interviews and I've I've very had, rarely had anybody ask me that question. So, well done. You've you've done your homework. I appreciate that. Um, well, I, I am a psychologist and I really study personality. I've done lots of personality testing in my life. And what I noticed uh, early on, back in the 1970s and early 80s, as I'm doing, I'm literally testing thousands of people, uh, personality testing, and as I uh, in my career, I dare say I've, I've tested 10,000 people or more in, at least, in personality testing. And I noticed a clear, a clear pattern. Certain personalities seem to be very religious. Certain personalities are not religious. And as I investigated this, I started realizing that if you, if you have a predisposition as a, per, as your personality, 
is predisposed to be conflict avoidant or risk avoidant, you're probably going to be more religious. If you think about it, religion says there's a big risk, the risk of going to hell or the risk of not going to you know, some more desirable place when you die or becoming a higher level creature when you die. So there's a big risk. If you're a risk-averse personality, you're going to hedge your bets. You're going to make sure the odds are in your favor. Well, how do you do that? You sacrifice to the gods. You give money to the gods. You go to church and worship the gods, and those help protect you. It's a, it's a strategy of risk-averse people, and it's a personality characteristic. Go to the other person who is not risk-averse, who really doesn't care. Uh, and, you know, they're out there climbing mountains or they're taking big risks. They're jumping over, you know, jumping out of airplanes with a parachute. Those kind of people are usually not very religious and may not be religious at all because they're not worried about going to hell. They're more worried about having fun jumping out of the airplane. That's what they really want to have. They want to have fun. They're more they're more now focused and they're more future focused, whereas uh, religious people who are risk averse are more negative future focused. You know, they want to avoid problems in the future and they're more past oriented. They're looking at, you know, they look at their own past and they try to protect their past. That's why very religious people are often very conservative. They don't want to change anything. They want to keep the world the same. Whereas uh, less religious people are more open to change. There's, there's five personality characteristics and I won't go into them right now. Four of which do not do not correlate in any way with religiosity. But the fifth personality characteristic does correlate with religiosity, or it, it, both positive or negative. And that's, that's the personality characteristic of openness to new experiences. There is a certain percentage of people in the population that seem to be genetically born with a predisposition to be open to new experiences. I, I see this. I have two children, and I, from the very day that my daughter was born, she's the oldest, and then my son was born uh, four years later, there was an enormous difference between these two children. My daughter would sit on the floor and could play for hours with the same toy and never move within more than three feet. She was just happy to be in the same spot and never move. My son, from the day he was born, from the day he could crawl, you had to be, you had to practically put a leash on this kid. He would be three blocks down the street if you weren't careful. He is a very adventurous fellow. And now between the two of them, my daughter is very religious. My son is very non-religious. <laughs> so right in my Gita Gita also has a a young daughter. Oh, you do. Okay. Well, what are what are her yeah. par- uh, characteristics, Gita? Uh, she is a 10-year-old girl, and uh, right now, you know, she is into a lot of questioning. I have got her The Magic of Reality by Richard Dawkins. She's reading that now. Wonderful. I love that I don't book. Know. Yeah. yeah. And I was about to ask you, like, you know, what do you, what do you think about free thought parenting? Like, how difficult is it? Do you have any suggestions, like, you know, how to bring up children? That's right. Uh, well, I yeah, I do. Uh, uh uh, Gita, I think the immunity is to expose – do not try to protect your children from religion. I think that's a big mistake. Okay. I think the yeah. best way it, – uh, we've, we've known for a long time that when children start going to um, school at five or six years of age, yeah. they come home with all sorts of viruses and diseases yeah. and sicknesses. Well, that's actually a good thing because their bodies are being exposed. Their immune system is getting mm-hmm. stronger. 
And we know that parents mm-hmm. that try to protect their children from that kind of a thing, uh, the children are more likely to have asthma and other uh, autoimmune diseases. So exposing children and to religion is the same way. Expose children to lots. I tell people here in the States, if you want to keep your children from being religious, take them to church. Lot, lots <laughs> okay. of Take them to lots of churches, though. Don't take them to one church. Take them to 20 churches. Take them to the Baha'i. Take them to the Muslim. Take them to the Hindu temple. Take, you know, take them to the Sikh, Sikh temple. Take them everywhere because pretty soon they'll start realizing it's all crazy stuff. And, 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 and don't, don't try to tell them what decisions to make. I really don't like it when I watch atheist parents try to program their children to become atheists. Yeah. They didn't they didn't become atheists that way. They came through their mm-hmm. own rational thought processes. Expose children like that the book. I think mm-hmm. Dawkins' book is beautiful because it it lets children come to their own conclusions. And so that would be my yeah. advice to you. Also, uh there's some great yeah, books by There are two great books, uh, Parenting Beyond Belief by Dan McGowan here in the United yeah. States. He's a yeah, he, okay. that his two books are very good for free thought parenting like parents like you. So do you know him? Do you know Dan McGowan's I follow his website. I follow his website. I follow his website regularly. Meaning. Okay. Dale's great. Website I follow. Yeah, Dale. Yeah, Dale's so a great guy. He's a friend of mine. I've uh, mm-hmm. I really enjoy what he's done. I think he's doing some great work. So. Yeah, you know, religions, religions are very interested in how, teaching you how to program your children for their particular God virus. We need, we need to teach our children rational thinking skills, skepticality and critical thinking skills, and let them make their own decisions. Don't try and make our decisions for them. That's, that's a very interesting point of view. You know, as we see uh, the God virus as a virus, we can also see uh, checked exposure as vaccination. Yeah. Mm. Okay, as an adult, how do you deal with your parents? Yes. Well, <laughs> well uh, it, it's. I think you have to ask yourself the question: How do I, how do I maintain a positive relationship with my parents while while being being me, being true and honest to me? Uh, I think the attitude I take, and I took it with my own parents, as I said to my parents, "Mom and Dad, you taught me to be honest and open." to be considerate of other people, to be tolerant of other people's religions. You gave me all these great positive values. And as a result of of what you've taught me to be open and honest, I have to be that. I cannot be anything else. And you did your best to teach me your religion. But when I really examined it, I just came to the conclusion, that is not me. I cannot believe this. I hold I hold you in dear respect as my parents that you'd believe it, but I cannot do it. And I want to be who I am, and I want to continue to have a positive, loving relationship with you, even if uh, even if I don't believe what you believe. And I don't think it was a condition of being born to you that I have to continue to, to be exactly like you. I'm not a clone of you, and you know that. And I think you're proud of me for what I'm doing and what I've achieved in life. So... Let's let's understand each other, and and I'm going to continue to love you, and I would hope you would continue to love me, even though I no longer can share your religious beliefs. I, I think if you couch it in terms of the values they taught you, 
and the wonderful stuff they gave you, and now you're using it. <laughs> they may not like the way you're using it, but you're not actually using it in a kind way. I, you know, I, I think I am a much. I don't. Th- I don't want this to come off sound egotistical, but I think I am a much kinder. I'm a much more open, a much more tolerant person as an atheist than I ever was as a Christian. When I finally got rid of Christianity, I could I was no longer homophobic. I no longer judged other people for how they chose to spend their time on Sunday morning. I mean there's lots of things I was very judgmental of other people about. But I'm no longer judgmental. In fact, you know, the Christian religion says you shouldn't judge other people. Well, most Christians I know are very judgmental people. Getting rid of that was something my parents taught me. They said, don't judge other people. My mom was always telling me that. But yet she was among the worst. <laughs> so I'm just practicing what you taught me, Mom. Delightful <laughs> talking to you. And we hope you would visit India soon. Well, I would. I have always wanted to come to India. I've just never had a, an opportunity. But I've been delighted to talk to you, and if you ever want to talk again, let me know. I'll be happy to talk. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Please visit our website at nirmukta.com. N-I-R-M-U-K-T-A dot com. Join our online community of freethinkers in building a culture of rational inquiry and critical thinking in India. For details or to send us comments and suggestions, please use the Contact Us page on the website or send us an email at info at com. And that's all the time we have for this week. 